0: There's a film from France from 2002 or 3 by a filmmaker called Gaspar Noé called Irreversible and it's probably the most traumatic movie I've ever seen. This podcast episode is about sex crime and it's not for the faint of heart. Discretion is advised because it will be explicit. Irreversible is about a violent rape. And the rape scene lasts for more than 10 minutes. It stars Monica Bellucci at her peak, really, looking amazing. And Vincent Cassell plays her boyfriend, fighting in a love triangle with another friend. They live a glamorous, cool life in Paris and she leaves a party in a a bad mood and puts herself in a really precarious, dangerous situation, in an underpass, witnessing a crime happening. (sighs) I'm getting chills remembering this and I have nightmares about this movie. I'm not gonna go further. Suffice to say, I don't recommend this movie for anyone with delicate sensibilities. But I wanna start our conversation here in order to orient ourselves on a topic. I think it's important that we as a society and as peers, that we calibrate our moral intuitions around sex crimes irreversible presents a very clear-cut case starring the most glamorous sexy desirable woman who even the most well-to-do cool guys should be fighting over and still not be allowed to have necessarily and on the other end the most skeevy disgusting aggressive terrible criminal thug who represents the worst of male lust and aggression and all-consuming, awful, annoying male energy. The filmmaker does a, a good job using such extreme examples to showcase and highlight the disparity, how unjust this disparity is. And how we, as a species, somehow prefer to organize sexual pairings, because society sets up rules. We have rules that are largely natural, but also largely based on our own mores of the time, and we're going through a process of re-examining these rules in 2020. I suppose the Me Too movement from a couple years ago was really the peak of us really examining this. And we didn't finish doing that. We're still trying. And I think it's important that we do so. But today's episode isn't even about Me Too. It's not about the fringes of sex crimes necessarily. Though I do want to touch on stuff like Harvey Weinstein the Hollywood producer that got it all started by running a quite clever scheme of a casting couch with young ingenues and Hollywood hopefuls. I might touch on the series The Morning Show that nicely fictionalizes this kind of workplace environment where men and women negotiate power dynamics, fundamentally speaking, And how human sexuality, as a fundamental aspect of our species, interplays with these new systems we set up, like a workplace. But my real goal in this episode is to really understand sex and sexuality a little better. And to then understand how justice is meted out through criminal law and what our moral intuitions do to help us there. Sex and sexuality is obviously an enormous topic and it's too big to fully go into here and I don't wanna really do a science lesson. I also don't really wanna touch the more controversial aspects of this topic that the trans movement is bringing up. Instead, I wanna focus most specifically on one aspect. Maturity. When is a person responsible for his or herself? When is somebody capable of making decisions? What power dynamics or social interactions influence or disturb that basis? And how do we measure maturity? How do we know when somebody is, quote, mature? Furthermore, as men, how do we negotiate our own lust and innate desire, however annoying it might be, with other aspects of life like social harmony, uh, non-harmfulness, allyship, etc. In order to anchor this conversation, I'm going to tackle three specific documentaries. These all portray very troubled men dealing with their sexuality in very devious ways. And I want us to pick apart the differences between these men and these cases and aim to better understand how and why we feel certain ways. Leaving Neverland is about Michael Jackson. And specifically about two former lovers, now grown men, who he dated, essentially, when they were children. It portrays the very intricate and private ways in which Michael Jackson courted these boys and their families. And how these relationships fit into a very particular, peculiar life. Surviving R. Kelly is a documentary series from 2019 and now a subsequent follow-up that chronicles the victims of performer R. Kelly. This man would seduce girls as young as 12 and as old as 17 and probably older. He would video himself performing devious acts with them. He would charm them into moving into his mansion or compounds, lock them in their rooms, deprive them of food, uh, prohibit them from talking to one another, as there were many girls at once in his house, and speak to the general cult-like behavior of the performer. Filthy Rich, the Jeffrey Epstein story, is... Uh, shorter Netflix series from 2020 that chronicles the life and machinations of secret private billionaire Jeffrey Epstein and his South Florida life, where he would find nearby girls uh, as young as 15 or 16 to come to his house and perform a massage on him for $200, essentially baiting them into prostitution against their will often, but debatable. And he would build a pyramid scheme this way of hundreds of girls and seduce them further by flying them to the Caribbean where he would rape them. The through-line in these three cases and the documentaries that cover them, aside from, of course, their wealth and power, is a topic called chronophilia, which is a subgenre of paraphilia. Paraphilia is a descriptor for anything outside the norm of what we consider typical sexuality or vanilla sex it could be described as a fetish. Anything that could be considered a fetish would be a paraphilia. Chronophilia is a specific sexual desire based on age. I think it's important to speak to age in this conversation about maturity and agency because it's obviously a factor given that maturity correlates so well with age. But how well? We all... Kind of understand the different stages in life, middle age being like 40 to 60, old age above that, uh, young adults below that. We understand infancy, toddlers, childhood until puberty. We understand adolescence. And then I would argue our understanding fails us. We don't really understand later adolescence and early adulthood. We don't quite know how to group. These teenage years into our 20s, we don't fully appreciate how varied people are in their maturation processes and how our physical maturation might differ from our mental and spiritual maturation. When are we adults? When can we vote? When can we drive? When can we really make life decisions, sign up for credit cards, and when can we agree to have sex? This is something called age of consent. And it's a hard number to pin down. Societies have struggled with it always and continue to do so. And I think this wild variation across the world is really emblematic of the issue I'm really getting at, which is how do we really measure who's mature and who's vulnerable? How do we do that? In the U.S., we might assume that the age of consent is 18, we think that because in California, the age of consent is 18 and most pornography is made there. And in order to trade and traffic pornography, you have to meet the most strict laws. So that's what it is. But 16 is actually the most common age of consent in the U.S. among the 50 states. Most of them are 16, some are 17, and just a few are 18. Around the world, you will go as high as 20 or 21 in places like Korea or Bahrain, and as low as, brace yourself, 11 in Nigeria. Incidentally, Nigeria is by far the fastest growing country. Coincidence? Throughout Europe, age of consent is 14, 15, or 16 by and large. 16 is also Canada. Okay, why am I going on about all this? Well, I want to now zero in on a word that we all know and love to hate, which is pedophilia. Pedophilia, technically, is the sexual attraction to prepubescent kids. Michael Jackson was a pedophile. His attraction was to boys who were six to eight years old. He actually lost interest in them by the time they were pubescent. Now, that's an interesting distinction. R. Kelly is described by experts as a hebephile. Hebephilia is this attraction to adolescence. So he married Aaliyah at 15, met her when she was 12 or 13, performed sex acts at that age while she was going through puberty as an adolescent. Many of his victims around this age as well, maybe a little older. Hebophilia is the sexual attraction to adolescents. They have sex characteristics, but they're not fully matured. Jeffrey Epstein's victims were older still. They were 15 or 16 or so. This age group of postpubescents is ephebophilia. Now, I don't expect anyone to remember these words, I'm not going to remember these words, but I am going to remember that there is a distinction between an attraction to adolescent and post-adolescent youths versus children, and that's a big difference in my book. That colors very much how I view each case. Am I making excuses? I hope not. I have much more to say about each case from a criminal perspective, but I think it is obvious that the victims of Jeffrey Epstein were of higher maturity than the victims of Michael Jackson, and that this must come into play when we make our judgments legally and morally. Now, the DSM-5 is the Handbook for the Medical Industry on Topics of Mental Disorders. It stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And an attraction to prepubescent humans is clearly in this book as pedophilia. This is a mental disorder. And I have compassion for people with disabilities and conditions. And it's hard for me to judge michael jackson as a monster knowing how kind-hearted he was and how civil he was in his relationships and at the same time i have compassion for these boys that were so confused and blinded by the celebrity and the adoration they had for him that they did real damage to their psyches and to their future relationships possibly probably i don't know given the clear abuse of power and care that Michael Jackson should have better exercised. When we talk about sex crime with Michael Jackson, what are we talking about? Well, he's clearly violating age of consent laws, according to anywhere in the world, (laughs) even Nigeria. Is it rape? Well, it's statutory rape, technically speaking. Were the boys screaming no? Were they suffering? Did they hate it? Were they pushing him away? Was it traumatizing for them? Well, the trauma trauma is an interesting distinction there because I think probably yes. But everything else, the answer is no. This was, by the look of it, a loving relationship. And as a viewer of this documentary, that is what's so interesting and strange for me to square with myself. Here I am looking at what could easily be described as a cool, you know, trade of sexual desire for, um, you know, a fun jet set life. You know, if you replace these boys with of age women, there's no problem at all. So the problem is the mental disorder of Michael Jackson and the ensuing psychological trauma on these boys to have to process this information given that we live in a society the society we do. But I wonder if we were to recontextualize those boys experience into, you know, ancient Greek society that supposedly normalized that sort of thing. I don't know. That's all hearsay, but I've heard that this kind of relationship with boys has in human history been a thing. At that point, maybe growing up isn't as traumatic. But that's philosophy for the sake of philosophy. I'm not throwing that out there to make any argument, really. I just find it interesting. Whereas when I look at R. Kelly, okay, this hebophilia is not necessarily in the DSM-5. It's not considered a mental disorder the same way. Because if you can distinguish sexual characteristics, I think we all have some appreciation, though I think most of us would still be appalled and distrustful of people attracted to adolescence. There is something more there, right? So while R. Kelly's attraction might be a little more understandable, especially for heterosexuals, the behavior seems even more criminal. Why is that? Well, it's because the sexual deviance extended beyond chronophilia. Say what you will about fetishes like uh, water sports or s or, you know, master-slave, these kind of um, fet life communities. These are weirder. <laughs> than the quite tame acts that Michael Jackson was performing. Granted, his partners were far from ordinary and obviously disgraceful and despicable. But the acts themselves, if we're looking at that, are Kelly is probably the most strange. Is that criminal? Probably not. He might be breaking criminal code with age of consent. He might not be, it depends. What is he breaking in terms of the law? What does the law have on him? Well, imprisonment, abduction, uh, abuse. I think these are the kind of things that the women were most uh, upset with. And that's what offends my moral intuition the most. The scene as a whole of these 16-year-olds locked in their own bedrooms with nothing to eat confused, their cell phones taken away, him barking orders at them, taking them out out one by one or as a group, as a harem, making his videos, and all the while declaring himself a victim somehow because of the media hounding him and also because of his own tormented past, which could be a valid point. And in the end, we should question free will when it comes down to it. But nonetheless, this entire R. Kelly saga is awful, period. Okay, Jeffrey Epstein, mysterious billionaire of Palm Beach, Florida, would lure local teen girls to his mansion, $200 for a massage. Sometimes it was just that, but he would slowly push the boundaries and offer and request sexual favors, maybe for more money. And girls, uh, confused in the state, feeling pressured, would give in, out of desperation also to take the money, given their general poverty. That was his victim class. And he would amass hundreds of these girls through convincing many of them to bring their own friends, which they would do. And some would stop and just escape, others would continue for the money, and some would fly with him to his mansion and private island in the U.S. Virgin Islands, where they would have no escape at all, where his behavior would become a little more rude and pressing and pushy and dangerous, leaving girls to want to swim off this island, questioning their life decisions. Now, if it ended there, I would say it's obviously bad. This is a villain character preying on girls underage who are not emotionally mature enough to make these decisions, even if they are physically mature enough, unlike uh, a pedophile's victims, who, you know, schemes a sort of dark, gross web of, uh, you know, something like, implied consent but not at all like um, presumed consent based on the desperation of money and confusion uh, very messy boundaries I don't know how to prosecute this as sex crime but as just general behavior I find it as abhorrent as a as a gentleman <laughs> but it continues eventually cases were brought against Jeffrey Epstein by the state which he subverted by appealing to his powerful friends on the federal level who made backroom deals with him for his own light house arrest sentences, which he didn't care at all about and happily traveled continuously during his life uh, during his house imprisonment. He got away with what he wanted to do still, even when he was supposedly brought to justice. The girls never had their day in court. And finally, when real... Uh, charges were brought to him he mysteriously died in prison the meme Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself implies a conspiracy that uh, points the finger at other rich and powerful men and probably women behind the scenes maybe Trump Bill Clinton etc who don't want any more secrets coming out and had him killed who knows but his life as he knew it was over so the suicide thing does make sense So this case, I think, stands out for the amount of corruption involved, the fact that this billionaire with powerful friends can buy his way out of our justice system. Those implications are terrifying, first and foremost, to me. Secondly, the amount of scheming involved, the levels of corruption, and the way that his attitude and behavior corrupted everyone around him from his... Main squeeze Ghislaine Maxwell, who is currently facing some amount of charges, I think, or at least under investigation, to every single girl he was able to convince to bring him more, and not to mention all the people that looked the other way, at the airports in the Virgin Islands, to the locals in Palm Springs, to the feds that were investigating him. So many people allowed him to continue on his merry way, abusing and violating girls in very gray area sexual relations, at least, if not a very orchestrated and thought through pattern of statutory and date rape. It's hard not to talk about Harvey Weinstein now that we've gone through Jeffrey Epstein, because there are some striking similarities, this kind of power and this filthy rich aspect wielding power from atop your throne with everybody at your beck and call to satisfy your sexual whims outside the boundaries of normal society you know i think it makes a lot of sense that as a public we are so offended by that and it's offensive even if the specific acts themselves aren't as terrifying as something out of irreversible Or even the Catholic Church. I would even argue that Michael Jackson's behavior with little boys is worse than seducing a 20 year old Hollywood actress, which I think almost every man could somewhat appreciate. That's not crazy. What's crazy is the subversion of a system in place wherein actors get roles through legitimate means and when people hook up with each other out of genuine passion not in this weird trade-off. Now I'm already sounding a little cynical that the women who slept with Harvey Weinstein or went up to his hotel room while he was in his robe in order to read a script were complicit in this trade of power for power. They were using their sexual power and prowess, of which we don't really recognize enough, this kind of power that women hold. It's very real, and it's very strong. They were trading that in order to get what they wanted, which was Hollywood power and stardom. And Harvey Weinstein, this gross man in every way (laughs) that I can tell, somehow achieved a level of power and success in order to wield that kind of influence. And I'm offended. I'm offended as a, as a normal man competing for these kind of women. But I'm also offended for someone that is okay with the system that we have, that we attract one another through our achievements and our charisma and our attitude and our uh, you know our character, not through the fact that we happen to run a company or that we have all this money. I find that whole game quite disgusting but it is a game that people partake in and you sell your soul when you do so. It doesn't mean that you're no longer a victim at all. Obviously the Florida girls that took 200 bucks can still be victims. They don't just suddenly become complicit because they take the money, but it does it does, uh, muddy things, doesn't it? It's funny that I'm sharing all of these kind of stories in one podcast that are quite different when you end up thinking about it. Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein have what I would describe essentially as a quite normal healthy attraction to women. Those women are very young and sometimes illegally so, but basically every man will probably admit to some attraction to a very young sexually mature female we don't devise our lifestyles around uh opportunities to meet them and seduce them but it's not insane that people might and history is full of you know interesting and successful men that pursue uh girls at this fringe stage of maturity who probably can appreciate what this powerful man offers are probably seduced by some amount of his power and are sexually mature enough to make that judgment. This is a very hard thing for us to shake our finger at, to uh, morally uh, denounce. It's difficult. I'm not ready to do that personally. I am ready to morally denounce the labyrinthine systems that exploit people from the Hollywood scene to the Palm Beach Epstein scene to the Catholic Church to Mormon polygamy cults and cults in general. You know, it really disturbs me that some men have such a magical power over some women and other men that other men would give up their wives to become sex slaves to the cult leader, this kind of thing. I mean, it's disturbing, but it's not technically a crime. Should it be? I mean, maybe it should be. I don't know. My moral judgment against that is very strong. I react viscerally to that kind of story, more so than, let's say, driving my car too fast or a parking violation, which are crimes, they don't seem nearly as criminal as a cult. Scientology, a legitimate religion somehow, feels cult-like. And the sexual exploits and secrets involved seem very dastardly to me. So now we have to talk about the Catholic Church, the real elephant in the room here, the ultimate in conspiratorial, systemic sexual abuse of children, no less. The 2015 film Spotlight does a great job tackling this topic somewhat obliquely by studying a newspaper team in Boston, Massachusetts. And I think it works as a device, as opposed to really showing us the graphic detail of these kind of cases, Whereas a movie like Irreversible does put our attention squarely on a very specific, independent case. Spotlight obscures it a little by focusing on the people chasing down the story and never focusing on any specific case. Instead, Spotlight is about the many victims as opposed to the one in Irreversible the underaged boys as opposed to the adult female in Irreversible, and the supposedly benevolent, kind-hearted, and sweet older men who are priests and fathers in the Catholic Church versus the easy-to-demonize, disgusting, violent, pervy man that we see in Irreversible. It does show how victims and perpetrators come in all types And it's impossible to compare and contrast the actual sex acts. Who the hell is to say which one is worse? I'm not going to try to. Though, hmm, no, I'm not going to go there. I was just trying to imagine who I would rather, like what hell would be. And I think hell would probably be more like irreversible ad infinitum more than the Catholic situation, but I don't mean to downplay it. It's horrendous what the Catholic church has enabled and hid and manipulated and, you know, avoided all justice, avoided responsibility and has never been brought to justice in my estimation. It's really, it hurts my soul to think about what the Catholic church has done in terms of sex abuse, but also in terms of mental abuse and spiritual abuse. I mean, it's just an abusive system. And I really disdain religion largely because of this. But it's not the only despicable religion. Let's not forget that these really young age of consent laws predominate in the Muslim worlds, And, well, I'll just leave it like that. So let's begin summing up here. Under this topic of sex crime, we have perpetrators, we have victims, we have sex acts, and we have the context in which all of this happens. Let's go into each one of these aspects to really hone our moral intuitions. The perpetrators, usually men, very often deranged in some way Either as psychopathic, these are your on-the-street criminals wielding knives and threatening your life, to mental disorders like pedophilia. Some of these differences are cultural, you know. I, I think we probably have evolved to delay our sexual maturity, at least mentally, and that nature still kind of assumes that we're sexually ready by 13, And some cultures around the world practice sex in that way still. And that could be just a difference in development as a civilization, perhaps. But by and large, men behave as expected. They can control their urges and desires as necessary, so long as there are healthy outlets eventually. I do think ideology, like religion, can poison this. I think people can be made to believe certain things, and this is dangerous, and we have to watch out for ideologies. Pickup artists could be described as an ideology. Uh, Incels uh, could be described this way. There are certain movements that it's worth keeping tabs on to make sure that things don't get so bad. But by and large, men in general... While we all do have this potential for sexual aggression, we know how to tame it and control it and we are mature enough to deal with it and to handle the burden of male sexuality. And it does so often feel like a burden. We might make mistakes here and there at the office, uh, unwanted advance, asking somebody out that doesn't want to be approached. Uh, fumbling through the courtships and all of this. Um, and this can extend to stuff that like um, the Zizanzari story or even Louis C.K. I would put in this boat. Really weird behavior that got a little messy and made people uncomfortable. But in the end, it doesn't equate to a sex crime. So I think we can probably leave it like that. The victims. Who are The victims. Unfortunately, it seems like the victims can basically be anybody. We haven't even touched on the number one demo of rape victims, which is incarcerated men in the U.S. So not even grown men are free from the threat of sexual violence. But today we've discussed, obviously, adult women. uh, And you might have accused me at some point of some amount of I don't know what sexism or misogyny or something the way I was describing Monica Bellucci as this exceptionally desirous woman and I do stand by it I don't think there's a problem in admitting that women also exist on a hierarchy of desirability and that our moral intuitions are attuned for those things and it's sad it's sad to say that but I think it's it's fair enough um, But perhaps more interesting still are the younger victims somehow. Uh, from these new words that I mentioned, hebophilia and ephebophilia for an attraction to adolescence and post-adolescence, and pedophilia. We didn't talk about infantophilia, thank God. I'm sorry to mention it now. There is a film on this topic called a Serbian film, which I myself have not even tried to watch. It's intentionally provocative in the face of Serbian censorship laws, but it touches on that if you are brave enough to stomach it. In any case, the human mind is exceptionally strange, and it's possible to be corrupted insanely. Um, But yeah, to stay on the victims, I think... We care mostly about innocence, about a certain fragility that children have especially. And we also put this odd value on competition, I guess. I think maybe this is my bias as a as a heterosexual man, but there is something disturbing about my crush being violated especially, if I can say it like that. And on the topic of victimhood, I just have to make this statement here because I think it fits enough. I worry that for whatever reason, whether it be modern third or fourth wave feminism or the Me Too movement in particular or whatever, I worry that women are developing a certain victimhood attitude to somehow give up their own agency to somehow claim victimhood at the slightest transgression of a well-meaning man. I think about Al Franken losing his Senate seat in the U.S. I think about Kevin Hart having to step down from the Academy Awards. I think about all these very minor cases where men make the most mild slip-up and are canceled permanently because women claim that this is such a threat to their well-being that any sort of clumsy male sexuality must be terminated full stop that's crazy that's really crazy i think that maybe our criminal justice system does need some attention but to consider any of these crimes is ridiculous and to consider such things fireable I think needs to be brought into question. I don't know. I, I don't want to say too much here because I don't re. I'm happy to hear more from both sides. I've heard a lot from the the women's side, the Me Too side, which for some reason does very little to stand up for rape in general, but does a lot to promote the ladder climbing of a certain class of women in certain kind of work environments. So that's my cynical quick take on that. But, yeah, victims uh, definitely need sympathy. I feel very bad for the women, the young women in South Florida who never got their day in court against Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, that's painful to never be able to speak your side in court. I think that's a travesty. And at the same time, I do think as parental figures, we have to remind our children and teenagers, that they are also responsible for themselves. They can't just be victims. And that, as such, it's important to learn certain life lessons as quickly and well as possible. Like to not take candy from strangers. (laughs) An old classic that I think fits into some of these cases. Okay. The sex act itself. This is probably the most fun topic. And in our gossipy moods this is where we would spend the majority of our time you know and I, I feel a little funny to actually wonder what Michael Jackson was doing specifically same with Jeffrey Epstein same with uh, R. Kelly even you know Harvey Weinstein what is he actually achieving with these young hot Hollywood wannabes you know I mean it's the stuff of uh, tabloids, right? It's, it's definitely lowbrow, but I think there's something within all of us that's curious. And when we gossip with our own friends about our own crushes and dates, we, we might discuss this stuff because it is meaningful how we connect with each other exactly. Maybe it's not that meaningful. I'm not really needing such details, but the acts themselves in terms of crime law, criminal law, probably matter you know if you're gonna levy an accusation against somebody you better you better bring something substantial because you know winking from across the bar doesn't cut it and the details matter when you're talking about consent in terms of how you end up in each other's beds And, you know, taking your clothes off exactly and staying over the night. And all these things matter when you're parsing out the guilt of somebody who has supposedly coerced you into something. Those things end up mattering. And I'm not intending to make some judgments in terms of, like, kink shaming or saying what's really gross or too much for me or whatever. I mean, I did mention in R. Kelly's case that his actions were a little more... Uh, perverse than some of these others and I'm not judging anybody that likes those actions that was more of the context of how he was doing it and to whom and all that so I guess that's enough said on the sex acts themselves it's very hard to compare something like the you know violent anal rape of Monica Bellucci at knife point to her throat followed by a physical beating to her face um, versus the very soft coddling of a young boy's penis while he fellates you know a grown Michael Jackson. I mean these are extremely hard to compare. <laughs> they're just dis- they're very disturbing in different ways, right? So I don't know how this is like apples and oranges, I guess, but the sex act I think does matter when we're talking about sex crime. And finally the context, which is really, let's be honest, it's everything. So let's end talking about this. I think it's really all important to consider how, when, where, why, all the journalistic points of a story. And that none of this happens in a vacuum. We have to take into account the whole, the totality of every situation. And... That's what makes something like Jeffrey Epstein so interesting because of his business connections, because of his power and his influence. If it's just some dude trying to bring young girls to his apartment, I mean, that probably happens every day, you know, and we don't really care. But when you systematize it and you, you know, you run this scheme over and over and over again, the case just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And when you can't even bring someone like that to justice because of their connections, well, that's really something, you know. And when you think about the the young boys with Michael Jackson, this is not, their feeling about the situation isn't quite equivalent to their feeling if they were molested by a priest. Because they don't idolize and adore a priest. They don't think it's super cool to spend the weekend at the priest's house. With Michael Jackson, they do, even if that includes an hour over here secretly not telling anybody what we're doing because this is how we express our love or something like that. You know, it's still quite fun in the moment. And to me, that's meaningful. I don't I don't want to discredit that. I know it shouldn't excuse it at all. Just because they have fun doesn't mean it's fine. But it's a factor. It's all a factor. I don't know. I... I'm scaring myself talking about Michael Jackson because I don't want to excuse anything he's done. And yet there just is this semi-charmed life aspect, you know? It's hard to articulate why that is. But I suppose I've said enough throughout this podcast for you to put it together on your own. And you know, if you if you strongly feel one way or another, let me know. I'm curious to hear more about people's intuitions here because I, I'm kind of am, I'm kind of agnostic on some of this. I know for sure that I condemn the Catholic Church, that I condemn Scientology and cults. I can admit, as a libertarian-minded person, that people do have free choice, if even if free will isn't a thing. If someone wants to sell all their belongings and move to some random part of Texas or Latin America in order to follow a guru into mass suicide or whatever, I mean to each her own, I suppose, but it offends me <laughs> and I stick to that. And yeah, I guess I just want to to really emphasize again my main points here. We have to be mature and we have to take into account the maturation of each actor involved in any story. And we have to really note why stories bother us. Is it the age gap? Is it the act the, of within the sex itself? Is it the conspiratorial elements? Is it the corruption? Is it the jealousy? You know, I mean, I haven't talked about, you know, actual rock stars and movie stars maybe like leonardo dicaprio for instance who only dates women between 20 and 25 i guess but he's you know he's allowed to do that and women are allowed to date him and they know what they're getting into and it's not criminal to break up with somebody because they turn 25 for instance but maybe it's sleazy maybe it's admirable i don't know who who's to who's to judge you know we all reserve the right to make our own judgments on that kind of thing in the end i personally feel empowered to really clarify for myself why i feel what i do whenever i look at a situation what is it about a certain topic that bothers me i want to work that out and i hope it helps you and i am also practicing my own maturity here you know i want to make mature reasonable successful choices in life and that can come down to the partners I pursue and it can come down to the contexts in which I build my life and pursue people within and it can come down to the amount of compassion I offer victims and perpetrators unfortunately I know we don't want to humanize evil in this world but I think we have to because we all do have some evil within us There is a yin-yang relationship of energy in all of our hearts. And of course, I'm rooting for the good to always win, but we have bad days, and I think we can work to make those bad days as bearable and tolerable and least bad as possible. Well, I'm ending in a place I didn't really predict. I'm not quite ending this essay in essay-like fashion, but that's how it is I'm gonna leave it here everyone until next time ciao